G'day, I'm Reggae Ellis and this is the Chill Factor Podcast. In this episode, I catch up with Australian pro skier Natalie Siegel. Nat grew up in Melbourne, spending the winter weekends in Mount Buller where her and her sister Anna learned to ski and bombed around with a crew at Team Buller Riders. While Anna took a competitive path in moguls and later slopestyle, Nat was drawn to big mountain skiing and successful stint as a competitor on the Free Wide World Tour. She's been travelling the world chasing snow for 12 years now, but for the past few years, Nat has been based in Revelstoke, where she follows her passion for free riding and the backcountry. I spoke to Nat last week just as a storm was hitting here in Fredbo and she was dealing with a heat wave over in Revelstoke. Let's drop in. Well, Nat Siegel, welcome to the Chill Factor podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, uh, okay, well, where are you? I know you're in Revelstoke, but where exactly are we talking to you now? So I'm in downtown Revelstoke, where I've been living for the last three years. Actually, this is my fourth summer here, so it's been a while. Um, Yeah, so in Canada right now. Now, I think it's fair to say you've been a bit of a gypsy over the last 10 years. Um, uh, Well, you have. You've sort of been moving around the different locations. Uh, Why setting up roots in Revelstoke? It's a really good question. Um, I've actually been thinking about that a lot recently because I have never, I haven't lived anywhere this long since I was in high school, which is really, <laughs> it's a pretty weird feeling um, because I started traveling in my second year of university. And after that, I just moved around everywhere. Um, so I think Revelstoke was really appealing because it had so much to offer. Yeah. You have a resort, the snow is amazing here, and then the opportunities for backcountry skiing are almost endless. I think I could live here all my life and not really travel and still be finding new places to ski. <laughs> well, I mean, did you discover Revelstoke through um, competition when you're on the free ride world tour or did it just somewhere you always wanted to go? Um, I guess I, I came here before I competed on the free ride world tour. I'd heard about it, but I actually came here in 2012, the year before I competed here and did a uh, crevasse rescue and sort of like women's mountaineering course at Selkirk Lodge, um, through she jumps and they're still running that, uh, course now. So I came here, but I didn't ski in Revelstoke. I sort of went up to a backcountry lodge and had this incredible time. And then I came back for the, um, free ride world tour. But before that, before 2012, I'd never been to Canada and I kind of avoided it because I just didn't want to be another Australian in Canada. <laughs> well, yeah, you, I mean, you, you've written quite a few stories for, uh, for Chill Factor over the years. And that reminds me of the one you did on Whistler a couple of years ago where you, you'd said you'd never gone to Whistler because you didn't <laughs> be one of those Australians. And then you um, were pleasantly surprised. Oh, absolutely. It was I think, I think there's a reason there's hype around places because they're incredible, but it is, it is easy. Like I, I still had people giving me a lot of, uh, they, what's the word? Not a lot of crap, but I, I definitely got a lot of Aussie jokes thrown at me. Um, and it's, it's such a small thing, but it's not something to be afraid of, but it was in comparison when I lived in America and France, people just loved that I was Australian. And I guess it felt nice to be wanted. Whereas in Canada, you sort of feel like, Oh, another Australian. <laughs> um, but yeah, of course, yeah, your sister Anna, she's living in, um, in BC at Pemberton, I think. So you're both over there now. Um, and, you know, after a lot of traveling, I mean, you know, you've been traveling, as you said, since second year at uni. Anna's been traveling all those years when she was uh, competing on the free skiing tour, etc. And um, so mm-hmm. Canada's taken both of you girls away from Melbourne. You couldn't get further away, could you? From our parents. Well, and that was a big factor. So I was living in France and I'd just been traveling so much, but the prospect of trying to situate myself in France and get a visa and even just feel like I was part of the culture just felt really hard. And yeah. the work holiday visas that Canada offered were, were so easy to apply for. And Anna was already living there. And I remember moving um, over here in 2018 and it was the summer in Canada and it was the first time Anna and I had actually got to spend time together in so long other than making, um, finding the line together. Yeah. And now I'm only a six hour drive away from her versus like a 20 hour plane trip that's going to cost thousands of dollars. So it's, it's really nice to have family close by. Yeah. And when was the last time you were in Australia? Two years ago, nearly. Wow. I mean, I remember, um, I think last time I saw you was at Mount Hotham for that free ride junior event. 
Oh, that yeah, that was. Been, I don't know. Three or four 20, years ago. 2018, maybe? Yeah, it might have been. No, that would have been 2017. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> time does Yeah, long, a long time ago. Um, yeah, we came home two years ago to sort of see family. Uh, and beyond that, I've been here. Our, our parents love skiing, so they've come over and visited us to ski. In. Uh, so they were over here two Christmases ago. But obviously with travel restrictions now, it's pretty hard to come to Australia. Yeah. Same, it's hard to come to Canada. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of the risk, I suppose, when you introduce your kids to skiing. There's always a chance they're going to disappear overseas. I mean, I do have that. Well, my daughter, he said, she's out of here straight after um, the ATC. So who knows, you know? So I feel like if you, your kids like skiing, there's a 100% guarantee that you'll probably lose them to the mountains elsewhere for several years in their 20s. Oh, okay, cool. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll get used to that one now. So how did it all yeah. start with you? Okay, you grew up in Melbourne. Uh, your parents ski. You are Mount Buller skiers? Yeah. Um, my mum, uh, she used to ski patrol when she was in university at Mount Buller. Right. And she could have been introduced to skiing through some family friends and I think managed to hitch a few rides up to the snow and sort of get invited on ski trips with other families. And she just loved it. And she traveled for skiing when she was in university. And I think her love of it sort of helped us along the way. Um, because when she first introduced us to skiing at Buller, we, I think Anna, the first time hated it. And then after she tried it a few times, just loved it. And it was my mom's excuse to sort of keep on skiing is cause we enjoyed it, which yeah. was sort of like a win-win. Um, and then I think we sort of went through ski school, did some of the race programs. Um, and I really followed Anna a lot in what she did. She was the older sister. And I remember I was racing and she decided to go to start moguls with team Buller riders, yeah. which was technically at the time. Um, and I, I remember being really jealous and not really knowing what I wanted to do, but racing was just, it started becoming something that. I obviously wasn't a serious racer. I wasn't going to be traveling overseas as a 13 year old to sort of race in Europe. Yeah. And I it just didn't really feel like there were any opportunities there. And uh, for the freestyle team just seemed a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I joined um, Buller Riders and spent like four or five years training with them. And at one point had some opportunities to sort of take a little bit further, but unlike Anna, I just didn't really want to go to the Olympics. So I took some time off. And yeah, went to well, it's interesting. Like Anna went from moguls, then you know she went into the slope style park scene as, it, as soon as it started. You know she won the X Games, yeah. and things like that, Olympics. Now you've taken a so you weren't interested in following the competitive scene as far as moguls and freestyle went, um, yeah. but you ended up following the competition onto the free ride world tour, first qualifying and then on the main main stage. Yeah, so I. Um... I totally, I love skiing and I, I still coach with Timbala riders, but I, I sort of didn't really know where I wanted to go with it. And um, I took a year off and went to France and spent a winter in Chamonix. And it was all, there's a whole funny story behind it. I didn't have a visa. I tried to work somewhere and they wouldn't let me. And I remember Joey Cochran, who's another coach from Timbala riders, was like, oh, you could try at Chamonix. And in my head, this is just like a dot on the map. And yeah. I hadn't really thought about it as what it is in my head now. It's like the mecca of steep skiing. Yeah. Um, and I took a train without any of my gear and tried to find a job there and managed to get a job as an au pair looking after kids. And oh, wow. I was in a hostel, I like went back on all the train routes to get my gear. Probably took me 10 hours with all my like ski gear on this hilarious like French public transport to get back to Chamonix. And then I was just there. I had, I was an Australian with no idea about backcountry skiing, just like in this Mecca. Yeah. Um, and the first time I went skiing, I went out with a bunch of guys who I found out later were sort of pretty keen steep skiers. And they took me down this like little couloir. Um, and the whole way down, I was like crashing, well, not on the, but like trying to get to it. Like I was jumping off little things and crashing all over the place. And at the start, they were all giving me a lot of crap, sort of like, I looked like a little freestyle skier. My helmet was over my goggles. Oh, right. And by the time we ended up skiing the cool, they're like, oh, you can actually ski. I was like, oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've tried to like, I, yeah, I've, I've tried to get into that. Um, and so like the period I spent there, 
it just really opened up my eyes to all the possibilities. Like you could ski recreationally if you wanted to, or I like sort of started, I watched one of the free ride world tour events there and I was like, what is this? The fact yeah. that you can go out of the gate and just do whatever you want. There's no pressure to do anything, but what you feel like doing. Um, so that really was interesting to me. And I returned the next year to compete. Uh, yeah. So that was like, yeah, 2013. You did the qualifying. I started competing in 2010. So it oh, took, okay. me, took me like, I think I spent, the, I had three winter seasons of competing. The first one was a total write-off because yeah. I had, I didn't have any idea about how the competitions work. Like I didn't grow up seeing the competitions. It was a totally new world. So I spent a lot of time working out how to pick a line how to ski the line, how to sort of play to my strengths. Um, so yeah, the first, the first season, I think I crashed or skied really badly in every comp. And then I started going to America to compete and I didn't make it past qualifiers for quite a while. Right. And then finally I won a qualifier and then made it to finals. And I sort of, once again, just like, it didn't quite work out. I think I crashed just before the finish line. And so you okay. sort of, there's a lot of investment to sort of learn how to compete. Um, and then in my, my third year in 2012, I just, it just clicked and I started to work out how to ski for my abilities, how to choose a line. Um, and I had quite a few good results, including winning the qualifying championships, which yeah. gave me a spot on the world tour. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it took time to get there. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah. you know, like you were the first Australian on the free ride world tour, you know, it's a, Australia's not renowned <laughs> for, um, you know, it's big, you know, it's uh, free riding backcountry skiers who want to compete. It's always been a few dabbling in it, you know, like with, um, yeah. you know, Cohen and Billy Lloyd Blaney and things like that who were trying to have a go. But um, for yeah. you, did that sort of, you know, that, that um, season in Chamonix just opened up that whole new world. And since then, backcountry and big mountains been your focus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it just, I always struggled. Uh, how do I put it? I just, I wasn't made to race moguls. I love the skiing, but I didn't quite the jumps. I did some of them, but I didn't excel at jumping, but not the tricks. Yeah. And I felt like in a lot of those disciplines, you sort of have to fit the mold. And what I loved about free ride and the way that the competition for like the way that they judge is that any style can win yeah. if you are, um, if you're showing the style at a very high level yeah. and you know, it, it does get a little bit subjective and there's a lot of commentary about who should be winning competitions in the men's and women's skiing. But at the end of the day, if you're someone like Jeremy Heights and you just want to go balls to the wall and straight down, there's an opportunity for you to win. Or if you're a freestyler, you can make the, the venue work for you and the judges will, will base off how well you're sort of doing that style and not, to necessarily comparing you against yeah. each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I think free ride's just cool because there's a lot more freedom. And then when you start talking about backcountry skiing, it's just like a whole other world to explore. You sort of never can learn everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah. Like obviously, as you said, Revelstoke is just unlimited limited terrain uh, in the back country there. Um, yeah, you went into that with um, lot of no lot, not a lot of knowledge. So just back country awareness, um, being aware of, you know, the dangers and avalanches, snow safety and things like that. Did you, how long did you do, do you think it took you to sort of become aware and com uh, comfortable and confident in the back country? Mm, I think it's like a lifelong process, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, the first, when I moved to Chamonix, I think I skied one or two days and the next, I didn't go out skiing until I took an avalanche course afterwards, just because the, unlike North America and Europe, the boundaries of what's backcountry and what's on piste is very like blurry. Yeah. And so, um, but that was a really basic course. And I think it's like when you do any type of training, you sort of, there's this like a uh, learning curve. It's like the first year or two, you sort of, you're like, Oh great. I know that I can go out into the backcountry and you don't see all the things that are happening around you. And like the positive feedback loop, you're like, Oh, well we, nothing avalanched here on us. So like, I'm okay to ski at this time with this much sun on the slope. It's safe. But you sort of start to learn that there's a lot of um, subtleties in everything you do. And yeah. you, you, the, 
the more experience you have, the more likely you are to make good decisions, but it never means that you're going to be safe. Yeah. And um, I think I like have gone with some ups and downs. Like I sort of would feel really confident in the backcountry and then have a really hard lesson. Like um, when I was in Chamonix in, I think, 2017, I was in an avalanche on a, like a 40 degree face that was pretty big. And um, one of the girls I was skiing with, she got ripped off the face and like taken down to the bottom of the slope. I was halfway down with like broken ski and sort of lost gear and two other friends were sort of a bit higher up. And I lost a lot of confidence after that because not every time I, yeah, every time I was boot packing up somewhere, I was just like, maybe something's going to avalanche on me. Yeah. Um, and like maybe my confidence had grown a little bit too much and I stopped looking at, like you talk a lot about red flags in the backcountry, like the little things that you start to piece together to realize that maybe you're making a bad decision. Um, yeah, I just started ignoring them. So I yeah. think, yeah. And I got some really good advice from a friend after that accident. And they sort of like, you know, you, you just took a coin out of the luck jar and put it into the experience jar. And hopefully by the time your luck turn out, you've got enough experience to make good decisions. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, I think one thing that I've done and I, I, I can really um, recommend to anyone who wants to get into that country skiing is like be okay with always learning and learning from people around you and like consistently take courses that help improve your knowledge base. Like I've resat or redone avalanche courses in different countries like sort of like not the entry level one, like I did an entry level course and then I did my area level one and then my AST level two. And quite often they go over the same things, but you're always learning and you always need to refresh your knowledge because there's little things that you start becoming slack on, like checking each other's beacons every time you leave. Like it almost, you have to do it so many times in courses to realize that that's super important. Yeah. Because it's one of those, you, you won't do it one time and then... And that's the time something could go wrong. Yeah. And so I think like taking courses makes you less complacent. Yeah. Because, and, and there's always new things happening in the sort of science, especially like we've got Avalanche Canada based in Revelstoke here. So we're really lucky because when they sort of start changing how they might do digging techniques or probing techniques, like every few years something new comes out and it's really awesome to always learn it um and i think it's like education's cool in the backcountry world like it's cool to be educated it's not yeah, cool yeah. to not know what you're doing yeah exactly <laughs> not, not cool to just sort of run the gauntlet and um, yeah yeah totally okay. exactly well we you know you, you've talked about um you know the dangers out there and of course we you mentioned finding a line the film you and anna did uh what three mm -hmm. years ago four years ago now i suppose oh yeah yeah, that, that was... <laughs> <laughs> we started it six years ago, really. Like the conception of it started six years ago. Wow. Yeah, and well, with that, it was all about you know fear and dealing with fear in the, the mountain environment. Um, mm -hmm. Now we've spoken before, and you said that sort of came from both yours and Anna's experiences. And like, and within that film, she was coming out of the you know, pretty well the the park world where you know everything's sort of there in front of you. It's a, you know it's constructed it's sort of you know just there as a as a, a built um a built course etc whereas yours was coming out of the back country or, or big mountain skiing and learning and then trying you know i still remember when you're trying to learn that backflip you know it was the <laughs> heaviest thing you've ever done and um and here's anna trying to deal with you know boot packing up steep steep terrain and skiing steep lines mm -hmm. um how did you know, was it just you two sitting around and talking one time and about your fears and, or, you know, it's a big project and it was a great, and you came up with an awesome result. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I think my favorite story about the beginning of this film was Anna and I were, were like, we want to, you know, we love skiing. We feel like we have a lot to give to sort of storytelling and skiing, but we don't know how to do it. And so we started being like, we want to make a movie together as well being Australian. Like there's a lot, there was a lot less opportunity when I compare it to people I know in North America and Europe. And like one of the reasons I think both of us have ended up overseas is trying to continue as a professional skier based in Australia is there's a point where it just doesn't quite work. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're both like, we, we want to do something. We want to 
try it for ourselves because it's not coming to us on a little silver plate. So we tried to film in 2015 in the Australian backcountry to sort of start this film and it was sort of about us, but we didn't really know what the film was about. And yeah, it's when we went to Mount Townsend. Yeah, um, yeah. And we had some really, we had a hilarious time. Like we didn't get to do that much skiing because the weather was pretty bad and there was a lot of wind. Yeah. And we just kind of ended up not fighting, but just like there was a lot of tension. And on the drive home from um, uh, wherever we were, like in New South Wales, back to Melbourne, her and I had this epic fight because we're sharing the driving. We're both exhausted after five days in the backcountry. And it's almost like we got down to like the root of the problem. and. And we hadn't spent a lot of time together. And I think both of us were really scared about the next step, wanting to keep on skiing, but not knowing what to do next. And like looking at the things that stood in front of us as obstacles. And I think it just boiled down. Like the more we talked about it to the fact that like the fear of trying to do something like Anna felt like she was a rookie trying to get back into the backcountry and she'd never make it. And yeah. I have, I'm a totally an overthinker and I really hold myself back because of, just not being able to turn my brain off. And it, it like we slowly teased out these ideas and it took like another year or so to really get the foundations of what we wanted the film to be about. Like we both did a lot of research on fear. We listened to like all these Ted talks, read all these different books and that sort of started helping us sculpting the idea, just using our experience um, yeah. to sort of share something that we'd both struggled with. And like, I think we still sometimes struggle with, like we go back to the same conversation sometimes because, you know, if you're scared of something, it's not like it's just going to vanish. Yeah. I um, mean, yeah, a project like that, it's a difficult thing to, you know, to, to get, get going, um, you know, funding, etc., like that. So how, how, and then you had Bjorn Salen um, working with you mm -hmm. on that, like he's renowned as well. How'd you pull it all together? <laughs> easier said than done yeah um so we uh, it was it was like a university degree in filmmaking I feel like like being a producer making it um we started off with a lot of well not a lot of support but we did have support from sort of like brands we'd already worked with like Anna yeah. and I were both all working with Oyuki at the time Bale came on board so like we started with our personal sponsors and honestly like not all of them supported the film um like it was a lot of we we sort of built a pitch tried to tell the story sent it out to brands um and it was it was like pulling teeth at the beginning trying to get funding from people yeah um and so we decided to do a kickstarter which is like and I, i'm sure you know from the chill factor kickstarter it's a yeah. lot of work and especially when you when it's a film you don't know what the end product's going to look like there was a it was really hard to run um and it was just anna and i doing it all yeah. So um, that sort of helped us to begin filming. Um, and then from there, we sort of got a few more sponsors on board. We were really lucky that a lot of the locations we went to, they were willing to partner with us where they would help us um, with like media fees so that we didn't have to pay as much to sort of work with them. Yeah. So we were like um, Big Red Cats, um, Point North Heli, and they were really supportive to try and help us make our dream a reality. Yeah. Um, but then Anna and I ended up kicking in our own money to finish yeah. the film. And um, that was really scary. It was especially scary during the editing, editing phase because it took quite a long time to edit. We had some, we had a bit of a roller coaster ride with it and knowing that all your savings is in the film that you might not get any of it back. Yeah. It was a, we took a risk, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think, Ever since then, now, whenever I want to make something, I usually try and have most of the funding before I start. And that's something that <laughs> it's funny because with creative projects, you're like, we're just going to do it because we love this so much. But you end up putting in so much work. Like we didn't really get paid. We, neither of us got paid for the time we actually spent on the film. Yeah. It was a labor of love. Um, but like, and that's not a complaint. It's just a statement. Yeah. Um, but uh, like, I think my advice for anyone who wanted to do something similar is like, it's better to wait and let the process happen rather than putting yeah. all your eggs in the basket and just going for it. Um, yeah. Like we just, we postponed the film a year because we realized that we weren't going to make what we wanted to in a short amount of time. So yeah. yeah. Well, in the end, you know, you end up getting um, 
a spot. Red, what, is it Red Bull TV? It's on there, and so people can still download and watch it. So it's a ongoing yeah. thing to be able to watch it when you're 90 and go, ah. Oh, Hopefully, yeah. Um, and we were really lucky. We had some really good mentorship from a local uh, Melbourne filmmaker. Her name's Fran Darham. She works sort of more in the surf industry. Yeah, I know Fran. Um, yeah, she, um, she was really like important, uh, to sort of guiding us and especially the tail end of making the film and like, how do we distribute it? How do we, how, who, who edits it? And then what do you do afterwards? Like, I didn't realize you had to do color correction and sound correction and online correction and like all the different formats it exports into. And so, um, that was like a definitely interesting learning curve. Um, and I think having like mentorship when you're making something like that's really important, like reach out to people and ask for advice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned before, you know, like uh, a career as a pro skier is not um, easy in Australia and it's definitely not easy. So, you know, you've been, um, what, 12 years as a professional skier? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, yeah. Okay. So professional skier, like a lot of people go, Oh, what's that mean? You just go skiing every day yeah. and, someone pays you for it. Um, yeah, yeah. What's your experience as a pro skier? What's your life? Mm, I feel like it's sort of changed. Um, at the beginning, it, it made a lot more sense when I was a competitor because when I was, when it was wintertime, I was getting ready for competitions, competing, and then like sometimes doing extracurricular things like media stuff. Yes. But like the focus was competing. Yeah. And I did that for six years. And so like when I was in the gym, like in the off season, I was like, I'm training to be a competitive skier. And it yeah. just kind of made sense. Whereas when I sort of decided to stop competing around 2016 um, and it was a lot, it, it's like a weird shift because you sort of really start to question what does it mean to be a professional skier? And I almost don't know anymore because <laughs> it, it's changed so much. Like, it's sort of you have a presence on social media, but you're not an influencer. And I think every professional skier has sort of made their own space. Yeah. Um, I think people are film skiing. They're working with like big production groups. Um, some people work like kind of like Cody Townsend. They sort of got their own creative projects that they drive. Um, you could just literally be a photo skier where you get, you sort of get paid to wear the brands and you go out and you get, coverage across big name uh, magazines, but it's a really weird thing. Um, And for me, I've decided that I want to use it as a way to tell stories in the mountains. And um, so, yeah, sorry. And how, well, the income to, you know, to live and pay your rent, is that sort of, it's still based on the sponsorship model? Generally, yeah. Um, I've had some weird things come up where I have really good years. Like I was in a tampon commercial uh, at one point in Australia. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was, yeah. Um, and, and sort of sort of more commercial work. But I think um, having a really good partnership with sponsors long-term yeah. is what um, has been, especially in the winter, that's my main income. Yeah. So but, who, let's, so you've been with Vocal for a long time, obviously. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I've been working with Ballet Eyewear for yeah. quite a few years now. Um, and I think, like, it's something that people don't really talk about, but, like, when you're starting off, you're sort of working with the Australian distributors who are as generous as they can be, but they don't have a lot of budget. And I was really lucky, like, Nick Hill introduced me to the Vocal International team when I was on the way out through com- com- competitive skiing. Yeah. And, like, without the support from him, I would have never had that opportunity. And like as a 20 something, 24 year old, I had no idea how to do that. Yeah. And so it, it is like you sort of working with the people in the industry to find support. Um, and then um, I'm now working with picture organic clothing, which has been really exciting. And yeah. I think like my interest is more to work with brands that are long-term and I get to do interesting projects with them versus like, I'm trying to get paid the most money. Yeah. And that's my personal choice. Yeah. Um, because I ski- like, you have to love what you do. Cause after that, after a while getting up to go skiing and shooting photos and video just becomes a bit boring. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but uh, like I have never found it. Uh, I don't ski all year round anymore and I don't think the sponsorship covers that. So I started um, looking at other options. So yeah. I sort of 
working on creative projects as a producer and I write and I also just started hiking guiding in the summer over here. Okay, cool. So I think, yeah, it's, and I think everyone does it a little bit differently. Um, It might be that some athletes for several years are full-time skiers, but I don't think long-term it's the most. No, it comes comes to an end sooner or later. I mean, you do have to to diversify, you know, and um, otherwise you'll have to go get a job in an office, which would be terrible. Yeah. (laughs) So you mentioned before you're at university, what, uh, what degree have you been ignoring? Um, I actually haven't been ignoring it. I'm very proud of myself. I studied fine arts. So oh, okay. I studied painting, which I think is, was very helpful in a lot of the creative sides of the projects I've worked on. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that's why I kept on skiing because it's a way to connect what I did in the past as an artist to what I love now, sort of recreating the mountains. Like sort of art is storytelling in a way. And, I think there's so many stories you can tell in the mountains that it, it's just become really fun yeah. now. It's, it's almost like I have too many ideas rather than I'm bored. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you're not getting bored. But um, so at the moment living in Revelstoke, so the guiding, I mean, it's a beautiful part of the world. Obviously mm. um, the mountains are somewhere have taken a big hold of you. Can you ever see yourself not being in the mountains? No, but... I miss the beach. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to go to Vancouver Island. I know. I feel like um, sometimes I feel like a, like a Peter Pan, but I'm actually not a Peter Pan, but I still imagine myself as a 25-year-old. Yeah. And then I realise that I'm 33, but I yeah. live like a 25-year-old that I like, so don't long-term. I'm like, do I still want to live in Revelstoke forever? I'm like, I don't know, but I guess so. Yeah. Um, so I think... I think it'd be hard to not live somewhere that and maybe not always in the mountains, but one thing that I love about Revelstoke is that I wake up and I decide I want to go for a run or go for a bike ride or do something active. Mm-hmm. And I grew up downtown like CBD in Melbourne yeah. and there's only a few options. And I just love that you can end up in nature so quickly here. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the most important part. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the mountains, but yeah. it's kind of being like wilder spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Now, obviously with this, um, you know, your choice uh, as a, a skier, you've had a number of injuries over the years, like, um, what is it? Two knee injuries. I remember, I think you had a photo yeah. for chill factor and you might've blown your knee at mammoth or somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, my first knee injury was a doozy. Actually, I don't know if it was for chill factor. It was, um, it was with, um, like the one hit wonder sort of. Yeah. When they were doing- Jimmy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and actually, I blew my knee just yeah just before a free ride world tour comp. It was pretty devastating. Yeah. Oh, um, and um, and then you just recovered from a, another injury, which is you know. Um, so this winter or the previous winter, winter just gone past in Revelstoke, you didn't ski uh, really only at the start and then right at the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a bit of a weird injury. Um, I uh, had a large part of my meniscus taken out because I. Oh had a weird crash while filming um, in February 2020. Right. Um, and it's like, I think as you get older, you know, your body starts to fall apart a bit. Um, and it was a big wake up call because from that injury, I had a few resulting things that kind of like set off a chain reaction of all the things maybe I hadn't been paying attention to. Yeah. Um, and I think when I used to train for skiing, I used to sort of do like CrossFit and mountain fit and like lifting a lot of weights and, I think that it's important to do that, but I've definitely changed my style of training around now to be ready for the winter because the things that I have to think about are more like balancing, like making sure more my muscles are working um, at the same time rather yeah. than just like the big muscles. And so doing more like Pilates style and really focusing on core um, because I didn't come up through an Olympic program. Yeah. I kind of always trained solo. I never had a coach. I just kind of, I'd take tidbits from places. I'd sometimes train with Anna and she'd tell me all the things I needed to do. But yeah, I don't, I didn't really have like a pathway, no one telling me what was right and wrong. Um, And so I think if anyone is wanting to get into competitive skiing, like making sure you're training right is really important because I think I ended up injured as a result of not training the right way. Well, yeah. yeah. Like now you're 33, 12 years, you know, how hard is it to maintain, you know, 
the training and the, the desire to do it? Uh, I think it's, it's just as much work as from the beginning, yeah. but I think you're a bit more like you, you sacrifice. Anna and I had a conversation about it uh, this last week or two. Like if I want to keep on skiing every winter, the summertime, like I have to maybe say no to certain things that all my friends are doing in the recreational side of things and yeah. go and sit in the gym and do two hours of working out. Um, which it sounds like it's not a sub story, but like your training is in the summer is your work. Yeah. And, um, so it's just like being prepared to do that. It's not hard. It's just like, you have to commit to that mentality. Um, and sometimes training can be fun. Like mountain biking is sometimes part of my training Yeah. or, but I think like the, the fun things like mountain biking or climbing, like they're fun things you do, but you get the most out of the gym time and it's just boring <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, but, uh, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's boring, but it, it's what pays off. And so I think that's like, you just, you have to be committed and dedicated. And I think the moment when I stop feeling that I'm maybe that's when I'll stop skiing professionally because I'll just be like, I don't want to spend my summers or like three quarters of the year just training for winter. And then I work all winter. I just want to have fun now. <laughs> so well, Yeah. Well, when you don't ski professionally, how do you see your future when you, you do, you know, finally decide <laughs> and when would that be? I don't know. Yeah. I know you don't. That's what I mean. I'm like 25 year old. No, um, I think I would love to transition slowly out. You know, obviously always ski. I've been asked whether I'd want to start ski guiding and I don't. Um, I think I used to coach and I loved it, but I just realized that skiing was my thing and I, I, I kind of don't want to share, share it with other people. Like in, I, I do, but like not full time. Like I love, I get to work with girls do ski in Revelstoke and I get to do some like mentoring sort of things. And that's awesome. But like skiing, at least now is still my, my like first love. Yeah. Um, and so I still am a bit selfish with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, long term, I, I would love to move more into a supportive role, like working in like producing and production and maybe doing things like I've done in the past, but helping other people tell their stories. Yeah. Well, you, you, uh, yeah. We're talking about how, you know, being a professional skier, any professional sport you know, demands a bit of selfishness because you just have to focus. So with all the travel and, you know, the focus you do have to put on yourself and your own skiing, is that, you know, as far as other relationships go, you know, um, has that made it more difficult to maintain? Um, I think that, I think our parents sometimes get a bit frustrated, even just with sort of like, we want to come visit you, but like when it's winter time, I'm like, I can't tell you what my schedule is until yeah. a week before it. Um, so I think that's been a bit of tough. I honestly hadn't had a really good relationship until I moved to Revelstoke, like with a boyfriend, because I think you just move around so much. I know, you know, talking to other friends, like someone once told me that I was like, I wasn't long life. <laughs> I was like a, a perishable. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember how they said it, but I remember being so, like, so offended. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And it's, it's sort of true. Like no one's going to commit. You've got to have a pretty crazy person who wants to have a relationship with someone who's like, I don't know what's happening in six months. Um, so I think, I think that's, and I'm sure anyone who has a job where they're moving around a lot, that's the reality of it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. The times when, you know, you've been traveling you're by yourself in another hotel room, you think, maybe I wouldn't mind just settling, not settling down, but it'd be nice to have someone in my life a bit more, you know, regularly. That's why I have Anna. I just, I just used <laughs> to take her. And that's a really nice thing. I think having someone who understands yeah. what you're doing and what you're going through and why you've chosen to do that, like has, I, it's been incredible having her as a supporter. Yeah. Um, even just making decisions. Like I don't feel selfish because I see that she makes that decision. And it's kind of necessary. Whereas you know, definitely. Yeah. I think, I think skiing, and I think making finding the line, it was really, really stressful. And it was a huge struggle because sometimes I just be, have to be like, this is what I'm doing. It's already decided. No one else is going to change this. Yeah. See you later. Um, where it's a, it'll be easier to juggle things when you're in one place, it's like living in Revelstoke. It's okay if I go away for a shoot for a week or two, because I'm going to come home in yeah. the end. 
Well, so. it's, a, it's, a, it's a good place to base. And, well, how's real estate been? I mean, obviously, the last 12, 18 months have been weird everywhere in the world. I know... Yeah. Yeah, you know, going into the winter, there was a you know COVID outbreak in Revelstoke, and I feel like everywhere, everyone was so paranoid at the start um, yeah. about visitors and things. What was it? What was it like uh, in Revelstoke the last nine months, twelve months? It's been. I think we really didn't properly feel like when COVID, the, like the first COVID outbreak, sort of like March and April, like mid March to the like end of April, early May is we sort of had restrictions, but it was never actually, it wasn't like in Australia and other places where it was these strict restrictions. It was just like everyone was so scared. They were just like staying at home um, and places were shut down. But the summer in Novelstoke last year was really chill. And it wasn't really until November that we really started feeling um, restrictions like altering everyday life yeah. because they sort of started saying like you, you, you're not really meant to travel unless it's essential outside of your like t- sort of local area. Um, and you weren't allowed into each other's houses, but especially in a place like Revelstoke where it's like negative 10 outside, it's not like you can go and hang out. Like we have a little back porch and sometimes my friends would come and we'd just wrap ourselves in blankets. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is the way we spent time together. And I kind of wrote it in the article was like exercising sort of ski touring or walking or cross-country skiing. But after a while that, you know, all human interactions aren't like that. You don't want to just be exercising. So I think it's sometimes like everyone just became much more isolated, but skiing was such a nice way to get out and do things with friends. And I almost like appreciated the times I was out in the mountains more than usual because you spent, I was spending so much time at home. Um, and I think we still had a pretty busy season in some ways that like people were still coming from Alberta and other places to visit throughout the winter. Um, so there was a little bit of like weird vibes because if you saw Alberta plates, you're sort of like, what are they doing here? They shouldn't be skiing here. Um, and, and it was like, I, I definitely tried to be like, if that person's making a decision, I'm sure there's a reason for it. I'm not going to try and judge anyone, but yeah, it was just you didn't have the same ski vibe around a place like Revy or Buller. You know, like when you have a really nice community, it's yeah. a nice vibe. It, you missed it a little bit because of COVID, but I think we were really lucky to be skiing because in Europe, everything was shut down. Mm. So think, um, Yeah, we've been kind of lucky here, but like you said about the you know, Alberta number plates, that's kind of happening here now. Like, you know, this oh, really? Sydney. Yeah, the um, seven local, you know, the eastern suburbs and... Rumour has it, you know, they've, uh, you know, anyone with those postcodes that, um, you know, they're going to be stopped by the police and everyone's a bit paranoid about that. Um, but, you know, yeah. it is in many ways. But I suppose in the mountains, we're lucky here too because, you, you know, last year, obviously we weren't shut down here in Threadbow like they were in Victoria. So, you yeah, know, we could go skiing. And that's sort of, you know, those restrictions when you've got a backyard that the mountains it's so, or the ocean, it's not as bad, you know. Yeah, totally. I think like we were not living in a city, generally speaking, has been incredible here. Um, But, you know, I think the other thing is, is Revelstoke is a tourist town. And I think a lot of people lost jobs, especially at the end of the season when we had really strict, we had sort of like a circuit breaker shut down for about two months. And it was at the end of the season. And, you know, already I'm sure people were not working as much as usual in the winter. And so, I think it was hard and I'm sure it's the same as sort of like other resort towns in Australia. Yeah. It's like that tourism is so important and it makes you realize that. And so when people were coming in, maybe when they shouldn't have been like a lot of, there was this like town divide. Like some people were like, let the sledders come and just like eat out because like they're paying people who need the money right now. So well, it was, it was a bit of an interesting one. Yeah. I think that's exactly what's happening in Jindabyne. You know, yeah. like, now probably it happened last year. But, uh, yeah, it is difficult. So what about now going into summer? Um, is Revelstoke open for tourism? Because I, I imagine it would be pretty popular for summer tourism too. It's a beautiful place. Totally. And I think mountain biking is getting really big here as well. So um, it's we actually, a week ago, we, like, BC travel was, has just been allowed, like, about to ticket. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and in the next week, I think if the case numbers stay low enough, um, and there's, I think they've like, they've got these different stages and they said they're going to proceed with each stage based on, 
um, the number of vaccinations, which I think the most they need is 75% of the population, which has already been hit, yeah. and also that the case numbers are going down. So we sort of like got to stage two, which is like big travel in BC, you're allowed a few people over at your house, you're allowed groups of 50 people outside. And the next stage is pretty big. I think they'll sort of make masks not mandatory yeah. in most places. Um, and we'll have like cross Canada travel. So we'll have tourists from um, outside BC allowed to come here. But um, Revelstoke really um, needs international tourism. Yeah. Uh, a lot of like the US, Australians are huge, um, even Europeans for a lot of the heli companies and stuff that employ a lot of people who live in Revelstoke. Um, so that's like, I think, going to be the big difference is if international travel is allowed by next winter, at least for people to come in Canada. It's a big if at this stage, especially yeah. out of Australia. You know, you're not even allowed to leave the country without applying, which is mm. a bit weird. You know, so you should crazy. be able to leave the country. It's your problem if you yeah. can't get back in. But totally. um, yeah, I mean, who knows? It's just um, mm. really annoying this COVID thing. <laughs> I know. The good thing is, is I think um, like Revelstoke, because we had a big outbreak in spring, um, we've just all had our second round, like the second round of vaccinations happen here. And so I think like a large amount of the town is fully vaccinated already. Oh, well, that's lucky. Yeah. yeah, well, I've only had one shot and then I think I've got to wait <laughs> a while longer. But yeah. um, we've had a pretty, uh, let's say, not very efficient rollout here in Australia of vaccinations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <To put> it- <laughs> now, okay, so what's on the board now? What's your next project? Um, I have a few going on at the moment. Um, I'm really excited. I had a project that I was working on last year that we sort of postponed just with COVID just didn't make sense, but um, it's a short film about localism and sort of questioning what makes someone local, which I think is pretty, especially the way we started this conversation is pretty relevant to me because I definitely think it's been a while um, where I'm like, what, when will I be a local in Revelstoke? And some people say, like, they're like, oh, but you're local. I'm like, well, what's that even mean? Yeah. Um, and the film's sort of going to talk about, like, our connection to places or place and land. It might get a bit deep, but I think it's going to be interesting in that way. Um, and I'm working with a really great director and photographer, Zoya Lynch. Okay. Um, we have yeah. some local writers. Yeah, we've um, some uh, Zoya photos in the magazine quite a few times. Yeah, she's really talented. Um, and I think something that's happening in Canada right now that's really big is acknowledgement of Indigenous land. Right. Um, that I've always, even just visiting Canada, and I always thought that they were a few steps ahead of us than in Australia, like just sort of a lot more acknowledgement. But in Revelstoke, there's this crazy history of First Nations people, but it's really, you can't see it around the town. And like the average tourist would come here and have no idea. And so the film's going to maybe talk about that a little bit and um, hopefully go out and spend some time with uh, different community members who are sort of going to talk about their take on what being local means. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be a bit funny, but also maybe a bit more real. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so it's kind of like it's skiing and mountain sports, but actually talking about something that is important versus just ski porn. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm working on that for next year and probably working on a few sort of more like short pieces. Like I just feel like there's so much to ski here and so many interesting mountains to climb that have all this history that I really want to get after. So do some of that as well. Yeah. It sounds pretty, pretty awesome. Actually. I'm, I'm jealous. So just before we yeah. go, we'll wrap it up. So, okay. You've made your life as a pro skier. I know, well, close to home. I know two kids who want to be professional skiers, but the reality, what do you, what would be your advice to any, you know, 16, 17 year old aspiring to uh, make a career as a skier? I think like keep on training, even if the opportunity doesn't come straight away. Um, like I think people, there's that sort of thing where you like, you think you want to be a pro skier, but you actually, you need to really want it because it takes time and effort. And you might find that some opportunities you feel like they're passing you by at one point, but if you're, if you're doing the right thing, your time's going to come, I guess. Like, and so I think patience is really, and like not being humble, but like 
being confident in yourself and just letting that speak for you, I think people will see your talent. They, you, you know, I think that's really important. Um, and like being ready to be knocked down and stand back up and like, you can have a cry about it. Um, but yeah, I think, and I think when I started getting into competitive skiing, like I got knocked down so many times and I was really lucky because I had Anna to sort of boost me. And so finding people, whether it's a coach, whether it's your family, whether it's like your fellow competitors, like find your crew and, um, and just go for it and enjoy like the ride, be happy that you get to be there versus like, I just want to win. Cause if your focus is on winning, you're never going to feel like you win. And then you just want more versus if you just want to perform at your best, I think is that like set goals that are going to fulfill you versus goals that just go for glory. That's, that's my advice. It's a bit rambly, but, um, but yeah, I, I think patience and like persistence. I have sent so many cold emails to brands for sponsorship. Um, it's ridiculous. So yeah, sometimes things come on a silver platter and sometimes you work your ass off for them. Yeah. That's life. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, um, I'd also say like you need to be in it to win it. So go, you have to go and spend time at the places where, their hub of whatever you're doing is happening. Yeah. So if you want to be a freestyle skier, you know, I, I feel like Perisher and Threadwell are still sort of the zones for that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So go and spend the time there. Um, and then like, if you want to be into freeride, go find like a freeride mecca and spend a few winters there and you'll meet people. You'll like find the community and they'll help you progress as a skier as well. Yeah. Okay. And just finally, if I, we could teleport you back to Australia in the middle of winter when yeah. every, every run, backcountry resorts were at their best, where would you want to be teleported to for a day's skiing? I, I kind of have two answers, but yep. my first one that just comes is obviously Wood Run. Um, or Mount like, Buller. yeah, Mount Buller. Just like epic, perfect, like bit of moguls, bit of power, probably all the like all the, the sort of my generation ski coaches around just shredding, doing laps, probably during the Avon Mogul Challenge if <laughs> if that still happens. That's that would be uh that'd definitely be somewhere or somewhere on the main range. It's getting dropped off with a tent. Yep. Sounds good. I think that would be nice for us. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Nat. Well, uh, thanks for talking to us. It's uh, good to catch up. And after all these years, well, not that many, but anyway, good to chat. And um, thanks again for being part of Chill Factor and your uh, regular writing for us every year. And we'll come up for something for next winter. And yeah. Have fun. Yeah, totally. Uh, thanks, Rego. Hopefully I wasn't too rambly. <laughs> <laughs> Rambling's good. Oh, the queen of ramble. Uh... <laughs> okay. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Rigay. Well, that wraps up another Chill Factor podcast. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review and share it with friends. We'll drop the next episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, I hope you get out and live and love Australian skiing. Find us at chillfactor.com.